heads and welcome to american prestige i'm danny bessner here as always with my friend and colleague derek davison and uh before we begin i want to apologize for the poor quality of my audio i'm still laid up with sciatica but should be better soon derek is sending me all of his hopes and prayers and i have no doubt that that will increase my health so i am (laughs) was i supposed to be doing that that's not in my that's not in my contract sorry (laughs) Sorry, sorry, Derek. We'll 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 take this off air. Um, but why don't we just get into it because there's truly a lot of news this week. And why don't we start with Ukraine? And uh, Derek, I noticed this is getting a lot of play in the media, particularly on social media. But maybe you can explain what precisely is going on and what this means for the war potentially. Um, well, as we covered in our special uh, over the weekend, the Ukrainian military has made significant gains over the last, I would say, week at this point, uh, mostly in Kharkiv Oblast in the northeast. Uh, this is a, a part of a counteroffensive that initially started in southern Ukraine in Kherson, but apparently the Ukrainians had been planning a two-pronged counteroffensive uh, with, without, they, they had announced the southern counteroffensive sort of well in advance, but they had not talked about this northeastern one they waited for the russians uh, savily i think waited for the russians to move their assets to the south to counter this uh, operation in Kherson, uh, and then launched another operation in kharkiv that the russians uh, were apparently completely unprepared for the events of the past 48 hours have signaled a dramatic new phase in the conflict with ukrainian president Zelensky saying his troops had retaken some 30 towns and villages in the northeastern kharkiv region uh, the russian line essentially crumbled they started retreating pretty quickly leaving behind a lot of weapons and materiel uh, at this point, uh, it sounds, it seems like the advance is sort of stabilized. The Ukrainians are f- focusing, I think, now on consolidating what they've managed to retake, which is almost the entirety uh, of Kharkiv Oblast. There's just a strip uh, that's along that province's border with Luhansk, which is, of course, in the Donbass and has been uh, under Russian control for some time now. Uh, other than that little strip, uh, the rest of, of Kharkiv province is, is under Ukrainian control at this point. So that's, I mean, that's the basic lay of the land. What does this mean in terms of the war? Uh, well, there are a few things. One, it, it puts the Russian advance in the Donbass under a lot more pressure. They had been running uh, logistics out of a couple of places that the Ukrainians now control, uh, most uh, prominently the city of Izium. Uh, which lies just north of the Donbass and has been a Russian, uh, major Russian logistical center for some time. The Ukrainians are now in control of that city, which which means the Russians are vulnerable uh, from the north, I think, at this point, if the Ukrainians decide to kind of try to press their luck here. Obviously, I mean, just retaking this territory is, is huge from a symbolic perspective. It's It's a big blow to the Russians. It's created some, I think, interesting new dynamics uh, in Russia politically, which we can talk about. Uh, for the Ukrainians, it's a, a, a major morale boost. It, it reinvigorates, or it has already, I think, started to reinvigorate 
European and American efforts to keep arming Ukraine. Not that those were flagging too much, but you could sense a little bit uh, in Europe, I think, uh, you know, kind of things were waning uh, a bit. I, that's that's over now. There's clearly now that there's evidence of uh, some real progress on the Ukrainian front. Uh, I think you're going to see uh, much more willingness to, to make with the weapons. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's that's where I would stop for now. I know there's been a lot of talk about like this is a turning point. This is it. You know, the Russians are on the ropes. The Ukrainians are going to you know, advance all over the place. Now, I, I would, I would be still very cautious. I said this over the weekend. I would still be very cautious about that kind of talk. It's, it's premature in my view. It may be that uh, this snowballs into something much bigger, um, but, but I would, I would wait and see. What is the link between this counteroffensive and the weapons that have been provided? Well, I mean, it's hard to know all the factors that went into the Russian collapse, but certainly you would have to assume, I think, or at least you could speculate that uh, the long-range weaponry that the Ukrainians have been getting from primarily the U.S., but increasingly from from European states as well, these multiple rocket launchers, these uh, you know long-range howitzers, uh, drones that they've been buying, that's, that's not really from the U.S. so much as from Turkey. Um, that, that the Ukrainians have been able to make use of these things to blow up Russian uh, arms depots, ammunition depots, uh, you know, command and control type things, logistical sorts of uh, things behind the Russian line that softened the Russians up enough to make this advance possible. Uh, there are other factors that, that really get into speculation that I've been uncomfortable with for a while, but you, you know, if you talk to these like Institute for the Study of War people and all the the folks who get quoted in major media outlets, they're convinced that the Russians are, are you know the Russian morale is bad, which at this point it probably is. But I don't know. I think uh, there's been some some healthy speculation going on there for for a while now. Uh, but the Russian, you know, they've talked about Russian supply problems, which are probably also fair. Although again, I don't know how much insight a Western analyst would have into something like that. So, you know, all of these things are, are possible components as well, kind of creating a, a Russian line that was brittle uh, with soldiers who were ready to, to run at the, you know, the, the first sign of an engagement who are not being well fed, we're not in, not in good shape. So, I mean, all of these things could be contributing, but I think certainly Western armament is, has probably played a role here. Could we tell how this has redounded to Putin's domestic ill or benefit? Is there anything that we could really know right now? It did seem like he was getting increasingly erratic, but that might just be, you know, social media filter stuff. Um, I, I, I think it's created some problems for him, to be honest. There, there are Russian media pundits, let's say, or commentators who have been very hawkish about this war, about the need to invade Ukraine and, you know, whatever it is that they're hoping to achieve there, uh, has sort of turned on Putin. I mean, when the, the, you know, they've, they've been on the ride through this, this entire war, you know, when the, the uh, attempt to sack Kiev failed and, and, uh, you know, that, that kind of blitzkrieg type operation uh, got bogged down and the Russians wound up withdrawing their forces and, you know, talking about, uh, well, we've we've entered a new phase of the war where we're just going to focus on the Donbass, which was an obvious kind of uh, attempt to cover up what had been a failure. They, they went along with all of that. They've, they've been along for the ride, really. Uh, but they've started criticizing Putin after this most recent advance, just in sort of the, the last week, uh, as it's been obvious that the Russians were not ready for 
uh, what the Ukrainians threw at them and that this is, you know, impossible to spin really as a uh, as anything other than a defeat. Um, and so there have been a lot of calls for, uh, you know, a lot of questioning. I mean, I say a lot of relative to uh, what you typically see in these outlets or from these people, a lot of questioning of Putin's management of the war. Uh, some of the decisions that he's made. There have been calls for fuller mobilization, like a, a draft, for example. Uh, Putin is resisting that. And I think this is where, you know, it gets kind of interesting because you have on the one hand, essentially his base, which is the sort of, you know, hardline uh, hawkish uh, wing of Russian politics, calling for something bigger, a bigger war effort. And, and you have Putin kind of, you know, potentially vulnerable. I don't know. I mean, the internal dynamics are are hard to suss out, but potentially, you know, needing to pay attention to that. At the same time, I think he has rightly assessed that a draft or a, or a larger, uh, you know, mobilization would wake up a, a lot of Russians who right now don't really have that much of a reason to care, frankly, about this war, uh, would wake a lot of them up that, hey, you know, by the way, we're at war in Ukraine, and by the way, it's not going well. Uh, something's wrong here. And that's something I think he wants to avoid. Uh, we'll see if he can sort of uh, fend off the the calls for, for a bigger uh, war effort, I guess. And we here at American Prestige will always keep you updated. Derek, let's move on to uh, another outbreak. Well, this is an outbreak, but but some more hostilities, and that's happening again between Armenia and Azerbaijan. But maybe you could just briefly describe what happened with Nagorno-Karabakh so people will understand the context before we get into what's going on now. Sure. I mean, the five-second version is the Karabakh region uh, is an enclave inside of Azerbaijan. It's in sort of uh, along the, the border with Armenia. Part of it is sort of connected uh, to Armenia through a roadway. Uh, this is a majority Armenian enclave. It has been Armenian for, you know, I, I wouldn't even want to assess uh, how long, uh, but the population there is predominantly Armenian. There was a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan fought over Karabakh that began really before the Soviet Union collapsed on a low level and then really uh, escalated when the Soviet Union uh, broke apart in the early 90s. Armenia won that war. They secured control of the Karabakh region as well as several other parts of Azerbaijan around Karabakh. Uh, it, things stayed that way for uh, well, until uh, a couple of years ago now, uh, they fought a second war over this region in late 2020 that Azerbaijan was victorious, uh, drove the Armenians out of all of these surrounding regions and left the status of Karabakh fairly precarious. That's where things have stood. There have been occasional border clashes and, and you know, things, uh, engagements between Karabakh fighters and, and Azerbaijan, the Azerbaijani military, or between uh, the Armenians and Azerbaijanis. But what happened uh, earlier this week, sort of overnight between Monday and Tuesday, seems to have been much bigger. Armenia says the Azeri army began shelling towards military positions around three cities. But Azerbaijan says it was responding to a buildup of Armenian landmines and weapons. We don't have a full, uh, at least I, I haven't seen a, a you know, sort of confirmed handle on any of the details, but uh, there was a fairly sizable battle uh, between uh, Armenian and Azerbaijani soldiers along the border in southern Armenia that left uh, at this point, I think, you know, it lasted uh, through Tuesday into Wednesday. 
Uh, there's now a ceasefire in place that seems to be holding. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, there were, I think, uh, somewhere around 180 soldiers killed uh, on both sides. The Armenians are saying they lost 105 soldiers. The Azerbaijanis are now saying they lost 71 uh, soldiers. And uh, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan has alleged uh, that Azerbaijani soldiers are sitting on some territory inside Armenia. It's unclear how much. Uh, but this is a this is a major escalation, if for no other reason than it doesn't, we're not talking about territory inside Karabakh, which again, sort of internationally is is still recognized as Azerbaijani territory, even though it's it's under dispute. This is territory inside Armenia proper uh, that the Azerbaijanis have supposedly seized. It's unclear, again, what caused this. Each side has blamed the other for firing first, but there are some tensions related to uh, the ceasefire agreement that ended the 2020 war that we can talk about. Um, and... Uh, at this point, like I said, there's a ceasefire that seems to be in place, but there's understandably, I think, concern that uh, we could be on the, the brink of another wave of major hostilities. One factor feeding into this may be the war in Ukraine, because Russia is supposed to be under the terms of that 2020 ceasefire agreement, is supposed to be sort of the guarantor of, of peace uh, or maintaining the ceasefire in this region. And its attention is obviously on Ukraine, not on the Southern Caucasus. And Azerbaijan may be uh, in particular, maybe tried to test uh, not only Russia's status as the this sort of ceasefire guarantor, uh, but also its willingness to come to Armenia's aid. If you you know if you uh, are familiar with the politics of this region, Armenia is part of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which is basically a Russian-led attempt at at kind of copying NATO. But you know, Russia does have treaty obligations, in other words, to Armenia uh, that. You know the Azerbaijanis probably feel like they're they're not really in a position to to uphold. So is that a knock on effect of the Ukraine war? Uh, I would say certainly it is. Uh, I mean, I, some of that is it's partly speculation, but I would say uh, it's a knock on effect of of the Ukraine war. It's a knock on effect also of the the very challenging. Ge geography, uh, political geography of this region. Uh, you know, part of the the cause for this or the the uh, impetus for Azerbaijan to continue hostilities may be uh, this talk of opening a corridor between Azerbaijan proper and its Nakhchivan exclave, which sits uh, kind of on the other side of Armenia, between Armenia or part of Armenia and uh, Turkey. Derek, uh, we so all know where the Nakhchivan enclave is. Come on. I'm uh, sorry. Think we are? Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, but that's uh, that's another factor here. We can we can talk about that if you uh, if you want. Let's talk about it. Okay, all right. So, Nakhchivan is part of Azerbaijan, but it's entirely separated from Azerbaijan by Armenia. For some time, uh, this has been sort of uh, another facet of the the dispute between these two countries. Azerbaijan wants a corridor. Uh, through southern Armenia that would connect it to Nakhchivan that would allow people to travel between uh, the rest of Azerbaijan and this exclave without you know any paperwork or, or that sort of thing. Under the terms of the 2020 ceasefire that ended the, the Karabakh War, uh, Armenia was supposed to or is supposed to uh, engage in negotiations about opening such a corridor. But the, what exactly that would entail 
uh, is unclear, and there are obvious concerns on Armenia's part about what it could mean. Uh, Pashinyan has talked about being open to, you know, uh, kind of uh, putting in more border uh, crossing posts with with Azerbaijan and allowing people to enter Armenia from Azerbaijan without, you know, a lot of excess uh, paperwork or anything like that to to travel to and from Nakhchivan. But the Azerbaijanis really want like a bespoke corridor. When they talk about a corridor, they want something that is essentially either under Russian control or their control. Uh, they want a rail line and a road, and they want it to run right along the Armenian-Iranian border because that is the, the closest, uh, that's the shortest distance, I should say, between Nakhchivan and, and the rest of Azerbaijan. Uh, the Armenians obviously aren't going to accept that. I mean, this is a red line for them because that would cut that would essentially cut them off from Iran. That would uh, cut that border off from the rest of Armenia. Uh, and that's something that, that the Armenians are unwilling to, to do. And I think Iran would be unwilling to see that happen too, although I don't know what uh, they could do about it at this point. All right, Derek, uh, let's stay in the realm of war, unfortunately. And uh, could you update us on what's going on in Ethiopia? Uh, yes. Uh, so on Sunday, uh, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is uh, still fighting a war against the Ethiopian government and uh, allies, including Eritrea, uh, they declared uh, that uh, the you know the leaders of the TPLF declared that they are open to an African Union-led peace process uh, and are ready to to uh, undertake a ceasefire, uh, you know, mutual ceasefire with the Ethiopian government. Uh, this is a a big step. Uh, one of the, the reasons, and, and as people know, fighting uh, between the TPLF and Ethiopian government resumed late last month, uh, again, with each side kind of accusing the other of breaking uh, what the ceasefire agreement that they reached in March. Uh, that ceasefire agreement was flailing a little bit or was kind of, kind of uh, lapsing a little bit in part because uh, the TPLF and the Ethiopian government could not agree on who would mediate uh, peace negotiations. The TPLF has been agitating for, uh, at the time, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, he's now former Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta, uh, while the Ethiopians have been uh, insisting that it has to be the African Union. And this dispute has kind of, you know, forestalled uh, any real peace talks. So the the offer from the TPLF to accept an AU-led uh, negotiating process is, is a fairly major, it seems like a fairly major concession. I haven't seen any response, direct response from the Ethiopian government to that offer. You would think it would have knocked some things loose. But instead, uh, what we have seen uh, is continued airstrikes on Mekela, drone strikes. Um, I think at least 10 people were killed on Wednesday uh, in a new round of airstrikes in the city. And uh, the Eritrean military seems to be continuing its advance through northern Tigray. They captured uh, at least one town this week uh, in that region. So it does not seem to be, unfortunately, does not seem to be a positive response uh, from the Ethiopians. They may be demanding or they may be expecting the TPLF to sort of disarm first, you know, go first in terms of uh, a ceasefire. Uh, or something like that. I don't know, but it, it, it sometimes these things can come down to something so silly as just like sequencing. Uh, but it, anyway, uh, there you know, so there there is an opening here for uh, it would seem for a, a, a peace process that everybody can get behind. But uh, there's so far no indication that the Ethiopian government is taking it. So let's move to Mali. What's been going on there? 
Uh, yeah, this is just a short and kind of vague uh, update, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Apparently, uh, a senior uh, military commander in Mali, General Al-Hajj Agamu, who's been leading the operation, been leading operations against Islamic State in the Greater Sahara uh, in Mali's Gao region, northern Mali's Gao region. Uh, he's both a, a commissioned officer in the uh, Malian army. He's also the head of a uh, Tuareg militia. So in both roles, he's kind of kind of doing a dual role thing. Uh, he went on WhatsApp apparently. Uh, I think uh, on Wednesday, perhaps, or Tuesday. Uh, anyway, the message has been circulating on WhatsApp to advise people in uh, a part of the Gao region, which uh, uh, around a village called Jebok, uh, areas between the towns of Gao and Talataya. Uh, he's been advising people to flee, basically, civilians. Uh, the statement said very starkly, there are no armed forces or any entity to guarantee the security of the population in these areas. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't, again, details, this is a, a fairly isolated region and um, you don't get a lot of reporting from the ground, but this is obviously not a good sign. Uh, it would presumably, uh, Islamic State in the Greater Sahara is making some gains in this area and the Malian government really, or Mali's junta, I guess I should, I should say to be more precise, uh, doesn't seem to have the capacity to do anything about it. So, so just a troubling, if vague, development that I I thought we should mention. Let's move on uh, to Sweden. So, yeah, there's election news from Sweden. Uh, Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson resigned on Wednesday uh, because it became clear that a four-party conservative bloc had won Sunday's parliamentary election. Uh, vote, the votes haven't entirely been counted yet, I don't think, uh, at least as of yesterday, they hadn't been fully counted. That may have changed today. But the, uh, the gang, the four parties are on track to win 176 seats, uh, in the 349 seat Riksdag. Um, what's interesting or, uh, maybe not interesting so much as, uh, troubling about this is that, uh, the party, uh, that's shown the biggest gains is the very far right Sweden Democrats. They emerged as not only the largest of these four conservative parties, but the second largest party in parliament overall behind Anderson's social Democrats. There are a lot of big questions in our society today that uh, in some ways hasn't been addressed correctly. And I think a lot of people uh, have been longing for a change, uh, even though that change uh, sometimes means shifting the uh, the polarity to the right in this case. At this point, the plan seems to be for the other three conservative parties who are, you know, a little more moderate at least and, and less toxic uh, to form a minority government. The Sweden Democrats will support them with their votes, uh, but they won't participate directly in the cabinet. Now, they will demand certainly uh, some say over policy in the new government. So, uh, you know, it remains to be seen how much. But the new prime minister is probably going to be the leader of the moderate party, Ulf Christensen, uh, which is, uh, again, interesting, I guess, in that he has previously uh, refused to collaborate with the Sweden Democrats in any way. I mean, just refused to deal with a, such, a, such a hard right party. He's clearly reconsidered that. Not only has he done a deal, this deal with them for support, but he's, you know, 
moved further toward their positions in a number of policies, not as hard right as, as the Sweden Democrats are, obviously, but he's sort of adopted moderate versions, more moderate versions of a number of their policies. Uh, again, it's unclear how much influence they're going to demand. I would think after this election, after you know uh, such a successful election, the Sweden Democrats will demand a fairly significant say over the policies of the new government, but I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, if they do, that could cause some of the more moderate elements of this coalition to kind of uh, balk. So Christensen may have uh, a bit of a, a management problem on his hands, but that's, uh, you know, again, something we'll have to wait and see. So I'm sorry, I should add that, th I mean, this is troubling from a Europe-wide perspective, and there are, you know, indications that the right is uh, either resurgent or never really went away. Uh, Italy will have an election. Italy will hold an election later this month on the 25th in which the Brothers of Italy, which is so far right, it makes Matteo Salvini's League Party look positively centrist, is expected to, to emerge as it, it, they're expected to win in coalition with the League and with uh, Forza Italia, which is Silvio Berlusconi's party, as a sort of, you know, right-wing bloc. And the, the Brothers are expected to win, you know, be the largest party in that block. And so they will control the next government. The next government of Italy is is very likely to be on the very far right fringe. So that's uh, all all good news, I guess. Never interrupt me again. Derek. It was it's it's end. important, Danny. <laughs> let's end with North Korea. What's been going on? Uh, yeah, so this is just a short thing, uh, but I think it's an indicative uh, the Supreme People's Assembly, this was last week when I was uh, on vacation, passed uh, a new piece of legislation that formally codifies North Korea's status as a nuclear power. Uh, it legally authorizes the North Korean military to conduct uh, a first strike nuclear attack under certain circumstances. Uh, you know, basically, if the country's at risk of being invaded or if its interests are, are placed at risk. Um, this this seems to be meant for international consumption because, I mean, uh, you know, Kim Jong-un could have ordered a nuclear strike already uh, under pretty much any justification. Uh, so there's no real sense that this, this changes anything in terms of North Korea's nuclear posture. But what it does uh, is it reemphasizes, I think, uh, um, North Korea's red lines, uh, you know, specifically for the United States and South Korea. Uh, and it serves to reiterate the determination of North Korea, the North Korean government, not to denuclearize. And this is, of course, um, you know, been the demand of how many U.S. administrations, South Korean governments, uh, since North Korea became a nuclear power. And and I, you know, they they just keep saying over and over again, we are not going to denuclearize under any circumstances. And and the U.S. and South Korea never really seemed to get the message. Moon Jae-in, the, the previous uh, South Korean president, came closer, I think, than any other uh, South Korean leader has done to sort of accepting that there's uh, the denuclearization is not on the table, but you can, you know, engage diplomatically with North Korea anyway. Uh, but that seems to have, have uh, gone by the wayside under the new North Korean government, so or new South Korean government, excuse me. And, you know, we're, we're back again to this sort of, you know, talking past each other where the demand from South Korea and the U.S. is denuclearized, and North Korea keeps saying, we're not going to do that, and you just uh, never engage beyond that. Seems like a perfect system to me anyway. Derek, thank you so much for your knowledge. I love your knowledge. Everyone, please um, consider actually this week, I rarely ask you this, but like, uh, subscribe to both 
the free letter, but even more importantly, uh, the paid the paid stuff. We've been uh, doing specials. We've been doing our, our series. We've been doing just cool, fun bonus episodes. So if you haven't yet, please check that out. Uh, and until next time, I love you all. Bye. Bye.